Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Church on the Trail. Stand with me. We're about to get started with our worship gathering. Everybody, come on in. Places, places, everyone. It is exciting to be in the house of the Lord today, isn't it? Isn't it good? We want to thank everyone who's watching via our live stream, or maybe you've clicked on this link. Thank you for being here. If you are new to Church on the Trail, maybe this is your first time to be a part of a worship gathering or one of your first times, we want to make sure we get one of these in your hands. This is our welcome packet. So if you've never received one of these, wave your hand at us because we'd like to put one in your hand uh, and we will, and Lonnie, we, yes, I'm sorry. Right up here on the front row, this uh, outstanding couple right here on the front row that we're not embarrassing at all by, by spotlighting them. So anyway, what you're going to find in here is, uh, is a lot of tasty information about Church on the Trail. This will let you know really a, a lot about what we're all about as a church. We like to say we exist to help people find their way back to God and grow. And so we hope this info helps you. You're also going to find what we call a connection card in this info packet. If you take a moment and fill out the connection card and bring it to our connections desk before you leave, you will receive a thank you gift from us. Just a way, our way of saying we appreciate you being here. Now, if you're watching online and you're new, you can go to our website at churchonthetrail.org slash connect, and you can fill out one of those connection cards. But at least if you're with us online, if you don't mind, in the comments and in the chat, let us know where you're watching from. Thank you again for clicking on and joining us for our worship. Hey, want to give you one quick second, uh, 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 just a couple of announcements, cool stuff going on in the life of Church on the Trail. Now, I want to see if everybody received when you came in what we call our worship guide. If you didn't receive one of our worship guides, Raise your hand. We're having a lot of hand raising. We, we apologize. Uh, but this is a cool thing. You can take notes on the sermon later during our service. And also you'll see a, an important little insert. It tells you about cool, the cool stuff coming up on our calendar. And I want to just highlight that starting next Sunday, one week from right now, our rally days start. Now, we, we do rally days for two Sundays in a row, so it's going to happen on the next two Sundays. And rally days are your opportunity to get involved in a growth group here at Church on the Trail. So the hallway will be filled with tables that have information about the smaller groups of, of people from Church on the Trail that gather throughout the week and throughout the month. Not on Sunday mornings, but just smaller groups that get together. And we find that that is the best way to really connect at Church on the Trail. So if you don't have a growth group that you're a part of, get one and get one next Sunday and the Sunday after that at Rally Days. And the other thing that you'll see highlighted on this little announcement insert is a, a, a seminar that we're gonna hold at the end of the month. And it is gonna be on September, uh, a Friday night, September 24th and Saturday morning, the 25th. It's called How to Study the Bible. I don't know if, it's, if, if you can relate to this, but sometimes I'm like, where to begin? You know, if you want to study the Bible, it can be intimidating. Like, oh, I don't even know how to do that well or where to start. This 
is a, a seminar that will help you. It's totally free. Childcare is even free. And there's actually a couple of meals in, in, included in this. You don't want to miss it. Go to churchonthetrail.org slash events to register. We'd love to have you. So September's a really cool month here at Church on the Trail. And one of the coolest parts about it is that you're here today and that you're watching today here on this September Sunday. So thank you guys for being here. We're going to take the next hour or so. We're going to sing songs of worship. We're going to offer prayers to the Lord. We're going to hear an awesome message from the scripture. And we're glad that you're a part of this with us. Are you glad to be here today? Are you glad that you've clicked on this link? We are glad you're here. We're going to turn it over to this amazing praise team. And they're going to lead us in worship. Sydney, thank you.
We just thank you so much um, for this country, and no matter what's going on right now, um, with 9-11 being yesterday, 20 years um, since that terrorist attack, and just everything going on, God, we know that you're in control, even when it doesn't feel like it. Sometimes we know that you're still working, um, so we just want to lift up the country, um, that you would just protect it and protect us, and we just pray for blessings over the country and our families and our friends, so as we sing this next song, Declare this out. Declare out the blessing upon future generations. Um, and we love you so much, God, and it's in your name that we pray. Amen.
Wasn't that awesome? You received that blessing this morning? Man, that is straight. That is a blessing prayer straight from the Old Testament scriptures. And I believe that uh, you guys did a great job speaking that blessing and pouring that. And we receive it. And we say amen to that, right? Great job. Thank you to our praise team. Didn't they do a wonderful job this morning leading us? At this point, please be seated. We thank you for being here. Thank you for watching online. Uh, at this point in our service, we get the privilege of worshiping by receiving an offering. And so in these times, we don't pass a plate or pass a bucket or anything like that. But we do want to give everybody who feels so inclined and feels led to do so, we'll give you an opportunity to worship by giving. And so there are a number of ways that you can do that. They'll be listed on the screen here in a moment. We have uh, some secure black boxes on the walls here in our worship center and one by our connections desk. And you can take the offering envelope that you'll find in the seat back right in front of you. You can place your offering in there. And then just as you leave, you can drop it in those boxes. You could also visit our giving kiosk in the hallway. You can go to churchonthetrail.org slash give. You can text to give. You can Venmo. There's just a lot of ways. And what we believe that we're doing when we give of our resources to the Lord by giving to Church on the Trail, we believe we are obeying the scriptural teaching of, uh, of giving back to God a portion of what he's blessed us with. And we also believe that our generosity in doing this is what drives and fuels ministry here at our church and all the lives that we're able to touch and all the ways we're able to impact our community and our world are because of the generosity and the obedience of our people. So thank you for worshiping with us by giving. So uh, I do want to, before we continue, I just want to say again to our visitors, to our guests who are here worshiping with us for the first time, or perhaps it's just one of your first few times. Thank you again for being here. Thank you again for watching. And if you would like to know more about uh, Church on the Trail, just look in the seat back in front of you. You'll see our connection card. You can fill that out and drop it off at our connections desk. And we'll get you all the information you need. Or you can put a prayer request in there. Thank you again for being here. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to say a prayer of blessing over the offerings that will be given today and throughout the week. And at the close of that prayer, our pastor, Ed Griffin Hagen, is going to come and share a word with us from the scripture. So join me in prayer, if you will. Lord, thank you. We're very grateful for our time of worship that we've had this morning. For those of us here in the room and those of us who are watching and, and worshiping while watching the video, God, it has been good to worship you, to feel your presence. So now we ask you to receive the offerings that we're giving and receive those as worship because that's truly what they are. We, we honor you and worship you by giving, and we ask you to use our stuff and our resources to touch other people's lives. Now, Lord, as we turn our attention to the message that we're about to hear, we ask, Lord, that you would open our eyes, open our ears, and really open our hearts to hear what it is you have to say. And we ask you to give us courage to respond to you when you do. In Jesus' name, amen. Morning. Good morning. You can hear me? All right, cool. Um, before we get started this morning, 
I want to I want us to pray again as well, um, and then we'll <clears throat> then we'll jump into the message. <clears throat> Lord, we do love you, and we do thank you for your grace that we absolutely don't deserve. Lord, thank you for being in the in the middle of the the musical worship. Lord, thank you that you have blessed our country and that you continue to bless our country. In the middle of the storm, Lord, you are the peace provider. You are the comforter. You're our advocate. You're our counselor. Lord, we thank you that your favor is upon us. Right in the middle of problems, and personal problems, and, 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 and problems in, in our country and in our world, Lord, we understand that you are unstoppable and that nothing is going to get in the way of your, you advancing your gospel. Nothing will get in the way. And Lord, we thank you for that. Lord, we ask for your spirit to, to be in the middle of this this morning, that you would lead this conversation, that you would guide this conversation, that people that don't know you would come to know you, people that do know you would grow spiritually for the advancement of your gospel. And so, Father, we love you, and it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Hey, y'all, so Acts chapter 5, verse 4 of Acts chapter 5. Um, Peter is talking to a guy named Ananias. And Peter says to Ananias, so what, what in the world is it that made you decide to do such a thing? You, you haven't just lied to human beings, but you have lied to God. I'm going to give you some context around this in a, in a minute. But he's like, what is it that made you do this? That's what Peter asked Ananias. Lying's going to get you. Big lies, little lies. At the end of the day, lying, deceit, dishonesty, it, it, it is going to get you. And it's going to get you busted. I want to tell you a short, quick story about getting busted. And this was not a big deal. But at the end of the day, you will get busted at some point. This is a little story about four guys went to Hardaway High School. Y'all know where Hardaway High School is? Go Hawks, I hear you, dog. I lived right around the corner from Hardaway High School growing up. So this is a story about four guys that went to Hardaway back in the early 80s, and I'm not going to name any of them. One of them may have had more hair then than he has now. Matter of fact, he may have had a mullet. I don't know if, if that's true, but it was a beautiful day in the spring of 1982, and these four guys couldn't fight off the temptation to skip school. <clears throat> I don't know who those four were, but they couldn't fight off the temptation to skip school. And the next morning, they got to school, and they explained to one of the teachers that they had missed school because their Pinto had a flat tire. One of them may have driven a Pinto. Matt, anybody know what a Pinto is? Most pitiful, pathetic car ever in the history of, of automobiles. Matter of fact, one of them may have been a two-Pinto family. One of them's mama may have had a Pinto, and he had a Pinto. So told the teacher that the Pinto had a flat tire. That's why they didn't get to school. Pinto had a flat tire, and that's why they didn't get to school. And she was cool about it, that the Pinto had a flat tire. She was cool. She said, it's not a big deal, y'all, but we did have a little quiz yesterday, and I'm, all four of y'all need to take the quiz. And I understand that you had a flat tire, but you do need to take the quiz, and there's only five questions. She said, sit down <coughs> and... Uh, Get out a piece of paper and a pencil. It's not a big deal. I know you had a flat tire. 
She said, question number one is, which tire was flat? <laughs> Needless to say, that test was failed by at least one of those four. So look, lion, you, you're going to get busted at some point. And so in Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira, they thought they were lying. And I'm going to give you more, more context here in a minute. But they thought they were just lying to Peter and the other, the other guys, the other apostles. But Peter said to them, you have not lied just to men. He said, you've lied to God. Truth, you know, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Truth is like an attribute of God. When we lie, we offend him. Our lying is an offense to God. And sooner or later, he's going to uncover every falsehood. And it may be in this life, and it may be at the judgment to come, I don't know, but y'all, we got to shoot straight, and we got to shoot straight with each other. We got to shoot straight with each other. We got to shoot straight with God. And if you've deceived somebody, if you've lied to somebody, you need to go make it right with them. You need to go confess to them, and you need to confess to the Lord. And it may be hard. It probably is going to be hard, and it may be humbling, and it probably is going to be humbling. But it is the first step in restoring some amount of integrity to your life. So y'all, thank you. So y'all, last week we talked about three characteristics, if you remember. Um, we talked about three characteristics that we see in the very early church. Because you remember Acts 5, Acts 4, and Acts 5. This is still right on the heels of Pentecost. This is still right on the heels of Jesus ascending to the Father. So it's right on the heels of the birth of the church. And we talked about three characteristics. And they were uh, th those were that that early church, that first early church, that they were unified I mean, they were unified, and they were unafraid. And they're being unified, and they're being unafraid. It led to them being unselfish. And we looked at last week, we looked at the last part of Acts 4, and today we're going to jump into Acts chapter 5. And Acts chapter 5 launches with this narrative that honestly has got to be ranked among the very most difficult sections, passages uh, in all of Scripture to read. The very hardest to stomach, really, this beginning of Acts 5, and as tempted as we very well might be to kind of push this little narrative into some dark, hidden corner of church history, hide it under some, some blanket or something, I think that would be a tragic mistake. Now, to do this, this section of Scripture justice we really need to hear it, we need to read it, we need to hear it in the way that Luke, and remember Luke wrote, uh, not only did Luke write, write the Gospel of Luke, but Luke wrote Acts. And so for us to really read it, for us to really hear it the way that Luke intended for it to be um, read and heard, and really for the, the, the way that God intended for it to be read and heard, we got to get rid of the chapter division between chapter 4 and 5. Y'all know that that's not inspired. God didn't put the little chapter numbers and the verse numbers. He didn't. And so if we can get rid of that, you probably got in your Bible a big five. Get rid of that, you're, we, we will at least begin to understand it the way that God intended. So I want to read to you the last few verses of chapter 4 through chapter uh, 5, verse 11. So the Bible says, No one among them was poor, since those who owned lands or houses sold them and turned over the proceeds to the emissaries, the apostles, to distribute to each according to his need. Thus, Yosef, whom the emissaries called Barnabas, that's Barnabas, which means exhorter, a Levite and a native of Cyprus, sold a field which belonged to him 
and brought the money to the emissaries. But there was a man named Hananiah, that's Ananias, who with his wife Shapira, that's Sapphira. So there's a man named Ananias, Ananias, who with his wife Sapphira sold some property and with his wife's knowledge withheld some of the proceeds for himself, although he did bring the rest to the emissaries. And then Kepha, that's Peter, said, Why has the adversary so filled your heart that you lie to the Ruach HaKodesh, that's the Holy Spirit, and keep back some of the money you received for the land? Before you sold it, the property was yours, and after you sold it, the money was yours to, do, to use as you please. So what made you decide to do such a thing? You've lied not to human beings, but to God. On hearing these words, Hananiah fell down dead. He fell down dead. And everybody who heard about it was terrified. The young man got up, wrapped his body up in a shroud, carried him out and buried him. Some three hours later, his wife came in, unaware of what had happened. Kepha challenged her, tell me, is it true that you sold the land for such and such a price? And you know, there was a number in there. That the reality probably is Luke, when Luke is writing this, he probably doesn't remember what the number was. But there was a number in there. Whatever the number, $100,000, I don't know, whatever the number was. So he says, tell me, is it true that you sold the land for such and such a price? Yes, she answered. That's what we were paid for it. But Kepha came back at her. Then why did you people plot to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the men who buried your husband are at the door and they're going to carry you out too. Instantly, she collapsed at his feet and died. The young men entered, found her there dead, carried her out, and buried her beside her husband. And as a result of this, great fear came over the whole Messianic community. Great fear came over the whole church. And indeed, over everyone who heard about it. So Luke is a master of contrast. So immediately after this brief testimony about Barnabas, the encourager, the exhorter, about his generosity and about his integrity, immediately after that, like in total transparency. Because the truth is, if this book was just some made-up book of fairy tales and stories to make you feel good, this would have been redacted out. It absolutely would not be in there because it doesn't look good. It doesn't sound good. It sure doesn't make you feel good, at least on the surface. It doesn't. So it, it would have been redacted out. But in transparency, Luke tells us about these two other Christians that, that jump on the bandwagon. They sold some property so they could participate <clears throat> like in the church's care and concern ministry. How they tried to gain credit for a greater personal sacrifice than they'd actually made by offering just part of the proceeds and passing it off as if it were the whole amount. And so the Holy Spirit in, the, in Scripture paints what was about to happen in chapter 5 against the backdrop of Barnabas' Barnabas's gift in chapter 4. The purity, the love, the zeal, the unity, the sacrifice, the generosity, the integrity of what was going on in that church. And you got to remember again, if you remember from last week, you're probably talking about 15,000 people now. Even though it had only been a few weeks since Pentecost. But the integrity of what was going on in that church, that's the backdrop of chapter 5 of Acts. But what happens here is an ugly, sad image of two people who totally violate the integrity of the church. 
And so what we're moving from is the sharing of the saints to the sinning of the saints. That's, that's the progression from the end of chapter 4 to the beginning of chapter 5. The sharing of the saints to the sinning of the saints. But there was a man named Hananiah. Ananias. Anybody know what Ananias means? Gracious. Gracious. Who with his wife Sapphira. You know what that word means? Beautiful. So Ananias has portrayed himself as this gracious guy. His name. His names mean something. Don't names mean something, Nick? Names mean something. Sapphira, beautiful. She's probably all dolled up, you know, looking all beautiful. So you got Ananias, whose name means gracious, with his wife Sapphira, that means beautiful, and they sold, they sold some property. So you think about that. Gracious and beautiful sold some land up in the county somewhere. And with his wife's knowledge, the Bible says in verse 2, his wife's knowledge... Ananias withheld some of the proceeds for himself, although he did bring the rest of it to the emissaries. And so Luke tells us that she knew. She knew. Whatever was going on, she was part of whatever was going on. And what was going on was they didn't give it all to the church. They kept some back. So what was their sin? Was their sin, y'all look all perplexed. Was their sin that they didn't give 100% of the proceeds to the church? Was that their sin? No, that was not their sin. They didn't have to give it all. In fact, they didn't have to give squat to the church. They didn't have to give any of it to the church. Nobody's got their arms bent all up behind their back to sign over the warranty deed of the property to the church. No, they don't. No, their sin was lying and deceiving and misrepresenting to the apostles, to the other believers, and to God. So they pretended, these two, gracious and beautiful, they pretended that they were going to sell a piece of land and give it all to the Lord. And so the sin is not that they didn't give it all. God never asked for it. God absolutely never asked for it. They could have kept it. They didn't have to sell it. Nobody forced them to sell it. They could have said, you know what, we're going to sell this property and we're going, to give, we're going to give half of it to the church and then we're going to keep half of it. We're going to open up a business and we're going to employ 25 people. We're going to, we're going to help the economy out here in Tel Aviv, Jerusalem, wherever they were. We're going to, we're going to help the economy, sell, sell the property half to the church. We're going to open up a business. They could have said, you know what, we're going to, we're going to, Sell it. We're going to keep 90% of it. We're going to give 10% of it to the church. No, no, no. We're going, to, we're going to sell the property, but you know what? We're going to take all of the money and we're going to open up a business and we're going to employ 50 people and help the economy. God didn't ask for squat, y'all. He didn't ask for any of that. They didn't have to do it. And so woven all throughout this sin, throughout this lie that they told, is hypocrisy. What is hypocrisy? It's this longing for self-glory that produces the hypocrite. Ananias and Sapphira, they, they, they wanted to look and to be regarded as all holy and all righteous. They're gracious and beautiful. They wanted all the pats on the back. Like, oh man, look at them. They sold 1,000 acres up on the backwater and they gave all the money to the church. Look, they're so gracious. They're so beautiful. 
That's, that's what they wanted. Look at them. They are super Christian. Man, man, Susan, when I grow up, I want to be like Ananias and Sapphira. Look how holy and look how spiritual. They're so spiritual. They even put it on Facebook that they sold that land and gave all the money to the church. That was a picture that, that the Holy Spirit through Luke paints of these two. And it's all set against the backdrop of Barnabas' gift at the end of chapter 4. But let me tell you that nobody is uglier in the eyes of God than somebody who tries to paint himself as all spiritual when in reality they're not. Verse 3. Capa, Peter said, Why has the adversary so filled your heart that you lie to the Holy Spirit and you keep back some of the money that you receive for the land? Peter says, Peter saw right through it. Peter saw right through it. He said, before you, sold the pro before you sold it, the property was yours, and after you sold it, the money was yours. You could do whatever it is you wanted to with the money. So what is it that made you do such a thing? You've lied not to human beings but to God. Peter had the gift of discernment, clearly, big time, and he saw right through the whole charade. And he's like, why, bro? Like, why did you do this? It was yours. And you could have done whatever it is that you wanted to with it. Whatever. Nobody would have hammered you if you'd have kept it all. It would have been like, look, man, we paid $200,000 for the land and we had to sell it for $100,000. It's a short sale because you know the economy went down and property values went down and blah, blah, blah. That would have been okay. It would have been okay. They didn't have to give any of it to the church. But don't be acting like you gave it all when you didn't give it all, Peter is, is, is like, dude, you're just a lying hypocrite. Verse 5, on hearing these words, Hananiah fell down dead. Like, what? 20 years ago, first time I ever read the Bible. I'm reading the Bible. Old Testament. New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Man, this Jesus guy is looking pretty cool. I get to Acts. You got the Holy Spirit coming. You got Peter's breathtaking sermon in Acts chapter 2. And then his second, right after that, you got the healing of this guy at the beautiful gate. And then I get to this. On hearing these words, Ananias fell down dead. I just threw my Bible down. I'm like, what in the world like just happened? Tell the truth. When you read that, you're like, "What God, what in the world are you doing? So pick it back up. He says, and everybody who heard about it was terrified. The young man got up, wrapped his body up in a shroud, carried him out and buried him. And he dropped dead right there. Don't think Peter somehow has the, the power of killing. God executed Ananias in the church. Y'all, they were in church when this happened. It's like Ananias comes up and he's writing this check for the proceeds. Right up at the cross or something in the church. And God smoted him. Like, I, I don't know. God executed Ananias. It freaked me out when I read it. So he's up there to get all the glory. He walks up in the front, get all the glory, to get all the praise. He wanted the same kind of praise that I guess Barnabas maybe have gotten. I don't know. But I know that's what he want, and God stopped his heart. He dropped dead. It so shocked him that he died immediately. Verse 7. Some three hours later, 
His wife came in unaware of what happened. What's that tell you about church? It doesn't say church lasted three hours. It said she was three hours late, right? She was three hours late to church. They was having church in there. Somebody's preaching a message. Holy Spirit's leading. They're singing. They're praising God for all he's done in that few several weeks. They went from 120 to probably 15,000, and they're praising the Lord, and they're in church, and she's three hours late. Y'all know Christy Murphy used to laugh all the time. She said, she, she said, I love your wife so much because I can count on her to come in with a cup of coffee right at the end of the second song every Sunday. <laughs> now she's three hours late, oblivious to what happened because she wasn't there. Verse 8 says, Kepha challenged her too. Tell me, is it true that you sold the land for such and such a price? Yeah, she said, yeah. That's what we were paid for it. Absolute lie. Absolute lie. She revealed a heart and a mind that had been deceived, just like her husband. But Kepha came back at her. Then why did you people plot to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the men who buried your husband are at the door. They'll carry you out too. Instantly, she collapsed at his feet and died. Y'all, I did the same thing when I read that. I put my Bible down. I'm like, who is this? Like, what is going on? It's just gross. It's just gross what happened. Their lies, the both of them. Their lies are foolish. Their lies are self-serving. Their lies are church-destroying. Their lies are witness-wrecking, God-mocking, and just plain sinful. Those are the facts. Those seven, eight, nine, ten verses, those are the facts of what, of what happened. And it's tough to take in. Like, it's tough to teach. It's tough to, to preach. But there it is. And we don't avoid the difficult conversations. When you preach through a book of the Bible, you don't get to cherry pick. You don't get to cherry pick. I'm not up here preaching a bunch of, of, of stuff that I just love to preach every Sunday to try to make everybody feel good. That's not what I'm doing. I'm preaching through God's word, and there's tough stuff in there. At the end of the day, big picture is we ought to feel amazing because grace is what? Amazing. Right? Somebody should have said amen to that. My goodness. Y'all said amen to somebody getting smitten. Let's say amen to grace. <laughs> but you don't get to cherry pick the Bible, so don't be a Bible cherry picker. So those are the facts. I want to give you some, some of my thoughts on, on those facts. Number one is this, that we... And if you got a worship guide, there's, there's a fill in the blank there. And our problem is that we all too quickly and, and all too easily get detached from what the Bible says about God's nature. Really about God's nature and about what does he say about our nature too. But we, it's just too easy to remove ourselves from the, from the revelation in Scripture about who God is and, and what his nature is. And scripture tells us that the essence of his nature is that he's holy. And holy is this word that you hardly hear in church. Anymore, at least. You want to go read Spurgeon. Go read stuff from 100 years ago. You read about God's holiness? It's holiness. It's the essence of his nature. It's not like an attribute. All the attributes of God kind of fall underneath the umbrella of his holiness. 
It is essentially who he is. He's holy and he's separate and he's pure. He's pure and he's holy. So we got to understand who he is and then we got to understand who we are. We got to understand his nature best as we can and we have to understand our nature because scripture reveals throughout itself, throughout scripture reveals who man is as well. Go read Genesis. You'll find out who man is. You'll find out who God is too. But we got to know our nature as well. 1997, a guy named Timothy McVeigh. Some of y'all probably remember Timothy McVeigh. He was convicted of bombing the federal building in Oklahoma City, killed 168 people. And during that trial, one of his old army buddies testified in court, and he really kind of revealed, made an observation about human nature. New York Times recorded this, uh, that the friend said this. Friend said, I'd known Tim for quite a while. And if you don't consider what happened in Oklahoma, Tim's a pretty good guy. Like, okay, let's not consider that he blew up a building and killed 168 people. Other than that, he's a pretty good guy. Like, that, that's nonsense. But most of us have this, at least a similar outlook on ourselves as we consider the prospect of standing in front of a judge of the earth, the judge of the earth someday. And we probably, none of us probably been found guilty of murder, but we can downplay our sins and judge ourselves by what we've done right. Did y'all catch that? We can take our sins and kind of put them down there and we're going to judge ourselves by the things that we have done right in our life. We think that if this or that is not taken into account, I'm a pretty good guy. Let's just remove all the, the stupid things I've said and all of the lies that I've told and all of the things that I've done to my wife and my kids that I shouldn't have done. Other than all that, I'm, I'm a pretty good guy. You know, Paul would say I'm a filthy wretch, but I'm going to say I'm a pretty good guy. And so the problem for us is that these failings of, uh, of ours are gravely serious in the sight of a holy God. Because a ho uh, the, the, this God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that we worship every Sunday in here, that hopefully we worship all throughout the week, this holy God, his standard is perfect righteousness. That's where the bar is. Perfect righteousness. He does not overlook any sin. Blowing up the federal building in Oklahoma City. Lying to the teacher that your Pinto had a flat tire. It actually is a sin to own a Pinto. But, <laughs> but, either, but either one of those are a, are a gravely serious sin in the, high, in the eyes of a holy God. Why? Because his standard is perfect righteousness. And without a Savior, every one of us face eternal judgment. Without a Savior, because every sin is an affront to a holy God. So some people, maybe you, maybe me, you read this account of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5, and we're like, dang, gum, man, dang, like, this a little much. Like, God, this is too, this is too harsh. I thought you were supposed to be loving 
and gracious and forgiving. I thought all that wrath stuff was for, that was Old Testament stuff. Like that, like right side of the Bible when Matthew, the, the gospel of Matthew starts, that's, that's a new God, not this wrathful, judgy Old Testament God. Y'all, God doesn't change. Go read Malachi 3. Go look at all the entirety of Scripture. God doesn't change. He is unchanging. There's not some mean old Old Testament God and some fluffy, mamby-pamby New Testament God. That's not the way it works. That's not his nature. He doesn't change. And if you and I overemphasize mercy, his mercy and grace, which we do every day, if we overemphasize his mercy and his grace, it's so easy to overlook his holiness and his justness. It happens every single day. Day. I heard somebody say about their church and they love their church and why is it that you love your church? Well, I love my church because I can go out on Saturday night and do whatever I want and I go to church on Sunday morning and they make me feel good. That's such a misrepresentation of the gospel. God doesn't change. He still hates sin today in 2021 as much as he ever did. He hates sin. And he is holy. And he is very, very concerned about his church's purity and his church's holiness. The body of Christ. He's concerned about the purity of the body of Christ. And so he's super offended when, when one of his own cut corners and try to hide behind the cloak of forgiveness. To, to, to hide under the blanket of the very forgiveness that he provides. And so in this case, sinning Christians, because I believe that Ananias and Sapphira were believers. Because don't you ever go down the road that says, I get saved, I become sinless. Absolutely not. I believe that there was nothing in Scripture that indicated that they were not. They were part of this early church. But God removed them from the fellowship. Why? In order to preserve the purity of that that church that he's birthing to go out and change the world. So number one, we got to get our arms around the, the very nature of who God is. And it's his holiness. Number two is this, that we can get really quickly, easily detached from the seriousness with which God views sin. And this is very much related to this first point. And I think maybe it'll help us to define sin first. You know, Scripture would tell us and portray sin as not only an act of wrongdoing. Is it an act of wrongdoing? Of course it is. But not only an act of wrongdoing, but a state of alienation from God. And for the great prophets in Israel, Jeremiah, Daniel, Isaiah, Malachi, all of them, their view of sin was way more than, a, than the transgression of some law. It was way more than the, than the breaking of some rule. It was a rupture or a fracture or a, or a crack or doing damage to a personal relationship with God. In fact, a betrayal of the trust that he places in us. And at the very core, please hear this, at the very core of, of God's nature, at the very core of, of who he is, is a massive desire to be in a personal relationship with you. 
So sin is, is, is an affront to God. Well, why is sin a, an affront to him? Because it separates us from him. And he so desires to be in a relationship with us. And we sin and we slap him in the face. That's what it is. It damages our relationship with him and he hates it. He absolutely hates it. It's the very antithesis of his holiness that we just talked about. And you and I, as humans, we have a radically different, tend to have a radically different view of sin. We make excuses. We blame other people. We blame our circumstances. Shoot, we blame God. We justify it all the time. Now, we don't justify the other guy's sin. You know, I don't justify your sin. I'm going to justify my own. And I do it all the time. People do it all the time. Like God wants me happy. God wants me happy. And I'm happy having an adulterous affair on my wife. It makes me happy. God wants me happy. Therefore, I'm forgiven. I walked the aisle when I was seven years old. I got my, I, I got my little um, salvation passport. I can show it to you. Because I got saved when I was seven years old. Walt Thou didn't know what I was doing. But I'm just going to go on living however I want to live because I'm forgiven. It don't quite work that way, y'all. We can be so flippant. That's such a good word. We can be so flippant about it. And particularly believers. And yeah, I said particularly believers. Particularly those of us that have accepted the forgiveness that he offers. We can be all too quick to use our forgiveness as this get-out-of-jail-free card, as a license to sin. I'm just going to keep on living however I'm living because I'm forgiven. What that does, y'all, is it cheapens the cross. It cheapens the grace that's provided at the cross. It cheapens the blood that's splattered all over the cross. It cheapens it all. It, it makes it just... It's not even worth anything when, when we do that. God hates sin. He didn't die on that cross. He didn't spill his blood all over that cross so that I can just keep on doing the stupid stuff that I do. He hates sin. Look what Proverbs chapter 6 says. It says there's six things that the Lord hates. Six things Adonai the Lord hates. A haughty look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that plots wicked schemes. You think Ananias and Sapphira had a heart that plots wicked schemes? God hates that. Scripture tells us that. Feet swift to run and do evil. A false witness who lies with every breath. And him who sows strife among the brothers. Him who sows strife among the brothers. Like Gossiping in the church. Well, gossiping outside of the church. Particularly gossiping inside the church. Running your mouth about something that you don't know nothing about. It happens all the time. You pick the phone up and call somebody and say, Hey, Betty Sue, did you hear about Betty Lou's husband? Been sleeping around on her, meeting some dude up at the hotel. And I'm just telling you this because I want you to pray for her. All the time. What does scripture say? Don't sow strife among the brothers. Don't. 
do it. He hates it. He hates it because it damages people's relationship with him. At the core of the core, that's why he hates sin. Now the fix for these two things, at least these first two things, the fix for our propensity to have a jacked up view of who God is and who we are, and our failure to really understand how seriously God takes sin, the fix for those two issues is found at the foot of the cross. I want you, I want to paint this little image for you. To see the Son of God, don't be flipping about those words either. To see the Son of God hanging, hanging up on the cross, impaled on that cross, beaten and bloody for hours, hung up there, got a crown of thorns on his head that wasn't just lightly placed up there. It was hammered into his skull. So to see him up on that cross and crying out in the darkness, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, and that means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You got that image in your head? It is as if in amazing, crazy, relentless, unbelievable love, he's made sin for us. He hates it. But he became that on the cross. Think about that. And if that's the image at Calvary, if that's the image right outside of the gates in Jerusalem, and if we can begin to get our arms around a little bit around that event, then maybe we can understand the terrible nature of sin and God's absolute hatred of it. And he does not, it's cliche, he does not hate the sinner. He does not hate you. He loves you. He became what he hated because he loves you. Do y'all get that? He does not. And that is a lie that the devil has been spewing for thousands of years. You see, God hates you because you're a sinner. No, he was made the very thing that he hates because he loves you. Like it's unbelievable. It, it makes no sense. That is what grace is. And so if God in dealing with our sin had to endure the, here's your word, the horrificness. If he had to endure the horrificness of the cross, then clearly sin is not some fly-by-night misdemeanor. It is a monstrous, massive contradiction of his nature and of his purpose and of his will. And so it's the seriousness that he views sin. Last thing is this. We're super too quick and we're super too easily detached from the way that undealt with deceitfulness and hypocrisy destroys the witness of the church, destroys the witness of the body of Christ. We can get ourselves separated from how that, that deceit and how that Lying and how that hypocrisy wrecks the witness of the body of Christ. I'm talking about Ananias and Sapphira's sin. How it could have horribly affected the believing community that God was birthing there at the beginning. Again, it wasn't about the, the, the gift. It was about the deceit and the hypocrisy. 
So this early church, this unified body, in covenant with each other. Don't, don't forget that, y'all. If you're part of the body of Christ, when I say we need to lock arms, that, that's what I mean. We are in covenant with each other. The body of Christ, this unified body, the mutual fellowship that God designed it is so critical to the fulfillment of the mission of telling the world about Jesus. Y'all get that? Our locking arms together, our being unified, all of that's designed by God. And it's critical to us fulfilling the Great Commission. The task, that task, it would never even be a possibility if this kind of, of, of public deceit was just casually tolerated. There's a guy named Henry Nguyen in a book called Journey to Daybreak. He said this about the body of Christ, about the fellowship of the believers. He said, in the Christian life, the distinction between a private life just for me and a public life for others does not exist. He said, for the Christian, even the most hidden fantasies, thoughts, feelings, emotions, and actions are either a service or a disservice to the community. He goes on and says, I can never say what I think, feel, or do in my private time is nobody else's business. It's everybody's business if we are in covenant with one another. So the early church learns a lesson, pretty hard lesson, very difficult lesson, a lesson that Paul would kind of write about years later in 1 Corinthians. He's writing a letter back to the church in Corinth. Chapter 3, and I want to call the worship team up unless they're already on their way. Um, but he writes this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul says, don't you know that you people are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? So if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you yourselves are that temple. Now in context, the you it's in these couple of verses, two or three times. The you is plural. And it's referring to the temple of the body of Christ. It's referring to the temple of the corporate body of Christ, the church. In these verses, Paul meant not that the Spirit dwelt within each individual, although obviously the Spirit does dwell within each individual. And he talks more about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. But in this, these couple of verses, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the body of Christ. He's talking about the church. He's talking about the Spirit of God living in their midst. We invite the Spirit here every Sunday to just be here with us and to lead us. I prayed about it a little while ago. And that's what he's talking about here, that, that the Spirit of God would be in their midst. And so this is so true for our churches today and, and every day. Don't put the body in harm's way. That's what he's saying. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't put, don't ruin the witness of the body. And it's so true for people who, who, who by conscious sin compromise a church's fellowship or by a contentious spirit, an argumentative spirit, a gossiping spirit, a Jezebelish spirit. Deliberately tear apart the unity in the body. Don't tear apart the unity in the body. Well, why? 
because it ruins the witness to a world that's dying, lost, and going to hell. Do y'all, y'all, does that make sense? Don't do it. And I want to give you this absolute main takeaway. This is a principle that lies beneath, I believe, lies beneath this whole passage. You know what? Probably this principle lies beneath all of Scripture, probably. And it is this. God will not allow anything or anybody to stand in the way of the proclamation of his gospel and the expansion of his church. Nothing will get in the way of the advancement of the gospel. Nothing. Not me. Remove me, bro. I mean, nothing will get in the way of what God is doing. Even if we fail to understand his nature, even if we maybe even refuse to understand his nature, maybe even if if we don't understand our own nature, even if we fail to understand how seriously he takes sin, even if we fall victim to, to ignoring deceitfulness and hypocrisy in the body of Christ, even if we do all of that, God will not allow anything or anybody, anything or anybody, to get in the way of the proclamation of his gospel and the expansion of his church. He won't. Hold on a second, y'all. Y'all can come on out. That was awkward, wasn't it? He won't. He's not going to let anything get in the way because he's got a plan since before the foundation of the world. And in, at this time, at the birth of his church, don't ever remove the cultural historical context of what's going on. At this time, he chose, and who am I to say that ain't fair? Who am I, 20 years ago, to throw the Bible down and be like, I'm not even going to read that. Like, who is this God that, that struck them people dead? I'm not God. I don't get to choose. He, he can do what he wants to. But at that time, his choice was to call Ananias and Sapphira home. And I believe that they're in heaven. I believe we will see them again because I believe that they were believers. They sinned. And to maintain, and you're probably sitting there saying, that's not fair. You ain't God, and neither am I. But he chose at that time to call them home. Nothing in Scripture says they weren't Christian. Nothing in Scripture says they, they weren't a believer. And so he maintained the purity of his church. Because nothing's going to get in the way of him proclaiming his gospel. Now listen, I painted this picture a minute ago. And of course the Lord doesn't need me to paint a picture. But, but what I said is, when Jesus is hanging on that cross beaten, bloody, dying up on the cross. And you somehow bought this lie from hell that says God hates you because you're sinful. You really need to take a look at the picture in your mind that was painted today. That it's the absolute opposite of that. That he hates the sin. So he became 
what he hates because he loves you enough to do that. And if you've never got your arms around that, let today be the day that you do get your arms around that. And it is not complicated. Y'all, it's not. That event that happened outside those gates in Jerusalem, he really did die. And he really did go in a grave dead. And he really did come out of that grave alive. And your sin's got to be paid for, and my sin's got to be paid for. And that's what paid for. Our role in that is simply to turn away from it. And you're not going to do that perfectly. You're going to do it imperfectly. But it's to turn away from it and turn towards the one who was made sin for you. And you confess with your mouth that he is your Lord and your Savior. And you believe in your heart that he came out of that grave alive. And then most of us would be crying out to him to save you. No, I did. So if you've never done that, I, I, I ask you, don't go to sleep tonight without considering that. Y'all pray with me. Lord, let today be the day that, that I do repent of my sin. Lord, let today be the day that I confess with my mouth that you are the Lord and Savior, and I believe in my heart that you walked out of the grave alive. Let today be the day that I cry out to you to save me. In Jesus' name. Hey, y'all, two things. We've got somebody in our prayer corner back there. If you need prayer, if, if you just made him your leader, your forgiver, your savior, and your Lord, please go talk to them. Come talk to me. And if you just have a, a prayer need, our prayer team is back there, number one. Number two, hang out for about 10 minutes uh, after this last song because we've got uh, a, a young kid who did what I just said. Um, VBS? at VBS. It's why we do VBS. It's why we do everything, right? It's why we do everything. Well, he did. He did. He made Jesus his leader, his Lord, his forgiver, and his Savior. And we're going to dunk him in just a few minutes. So y'all hang out for that.
Hey, y'all. Y'all, if you want to come closer, come closer, but I got to say this. I've never probably said this, but our worship, musical, musical worship is, I just love it all the time. Today, I don't know what it was, Holy Spirit driven, but today was off the charts. Like it was off the charts. So I'm so thankful for our worship team. Um, amen. We're about to do something that, that believers have been doing for a long time. Uh, we call it the God plunge here. Biblical baptism, which comes after salvation, right? It doesn't come before salvation. It doesn't cause salvation. It, it comes after. In obedience, it comes after salvation. Do we need to get baptized? Absolutely. But it's an obedience issue. There's nothing... I've said this a hundred times. This doesn't, we didn't ship it in from the Jordan River. There's nothing about the water that is salvific. There's nothing about this water that saves somebody. We're called to be obedient. We're called to be immersed, to be baptized in water as, a, as, as just a sign of obedience. And it's a beautiful image of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. That's why we do what we do. And it's even more cool when it's a young person who has a new heart. When it's a young person who, what Paul calls, is now a new creation. It's so cool. And so we've got a young man that is doing that, uh, made a profession of faith, and we're going we're gonna to dunk him today. His dad, uh, mom and dad asked me to hold him down a little extra, but I'm not going to do that. Um, but at the end of the day, it's a very cool thing, and... One of our kids' leaders, Brittany, is going gonna, is gonna to read you kind of his story. Okay, so I'm very honored as Remy's Sunday school teacher to read his response when asked about his salvation story. Hello, my name is Remington Reyes, and I'm eight years old. I've been going to church my whole life, but I didn't know what it meant to have a personal relationship with God. One Sunday morning... All of the kids went to grown-up church, and we saw people getting baptized. When we went back to the classroom, I had a lot of questions for my Sunday school teacher. My teacher explained that baptism was a symbol to show people that you believe in God. After that, I knew I wanted to know more about Jesus. She gave me a book called I Am a Christian Now. This book is for kids to learn more about God and what he has done for us. I really enjoyed looking up Bible verses and learning more about the Bible. After learning more about God, I believed he sent his son, Jesus, to die on the cross for my sins. Since I became a Christian, I feel Jesus in my heart every day, and it makes me happy. I'm so proud of you, Remy. We almost forgot the kind of the star of the show a minute. I'm like, well, we need to get him in the water. So, dude, it's super cool. Super, super cool. I want to ask you a question, and you kind of just answered that question, but I want to ask you the question too. Have you made Jesus the leader and forgiver of your life? Yes. He said yes. Super cool. Cover your nose up. No, 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 no. We're going to go backwards. Hold, hold, hold your nose. You are buried in the likeness of his death and raised to walk in the newness of life. 
Stand up, stand up and let everybody see. Y'all, there is just nothing cooler than seeing a, a, a child get saved and be baptized and walk, I just said, and walk in the newness of life. Walk the rest of his days in the newness of life. Walk the rest of his days as a witness for the one who allowed him to walk in the newness of life. Y'all, it's, it's, it's just the best thing ever. So they're going to be out there. Y'all come shake this man's hand. Come shake his hand, love on him, hug him. So it's cool. So, hey, y'all are dismissed. Hop on out, get dried off.